Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 21st of September 2022. News. 143 different drugs to tackle dementia are undergoing trials. Are we on the verge of a breakthrough? This article is by Rosemary Goring. The holy grail of medicine in the 20th century was to find a cure for cancer. Given there are more than 200 types, this was an awesome task, dominating the lives of an army of scientists each of whom chipped away at the marble rock face of this much-feared disease. You won't find a better description of what this entailed than Siddhartha Mukherjee's The Emperor of All Maladies, an enthralling account of the race to find answers. As with any prolonged battle, it was, and continues to be, A story of advances and reversals, sometimes achieved in the face of daunting obstacles. Many decades on, despite the resources poured into the fight, cancer has not yet been vanquished. It is still a diagnosis everyone dreads. It still claims far too many lives. But since with some cancers it is possible to have treatment that is effectively curative, that slows its progress sufficiently that you're more likely to die of something else, the situation is light years away from what it was in the 1950s. Meanwhile, the search continues for ways of combating even the most intractable forms of the disease. Such have been the advances, it is now conceivable that eventually every form of cancer, if caught in time, will be treatable to the extent that sufferers can live with it for the rest of their lives. Today, no medical breakthrough catches headlines like the prospect of a cure for Alzheimer's, which has become this century's greatest medical challenge for those in the West. In the past 20 years, we've read countless articles about pharmaceutical companies trialling drugs which they all hope, will take the sting out of dementia. In the end, however, the outcomes have always been a disappointment. In scientific circles, the old joke is that for the past 30 years, they've always been five years away from a life-changing treatment. At the moment, the results of three promising stage three trials by different firms, Roche, ASA, and Biogen and Ellie Lilly and Company are expected imminently. Stage three is the final hurdle before seeking approval for drugs to go on the market. Although each takes a different approach, all of them are targeting the build-up of a toxic protein 
called amyloid, widely considered to be the root of the brain's degeneration caused by Alzheimer's. On one side of the medical fraternity are the optimists, who think these drugs might represent the eureka moment we've all been waiting for. They believe that, although they won't eradicate dementia, if taken after an early diagnosis, they could offer an additional three years of good quality of life. And that's just the start. Once these medicinal building blocks have been confirmed as efficacious, they can be adjusted to suit a variety of needs. In this scenario, many of us might one day find ourselves taking a cocktail of medicines at sundown as easily and regularly as a gin and tonic. Pessimists, however, are less convinced by the powers of these supposedly super drugs. Some indeed think that the focus on amyloid as the cause of Alzheimer's is misguided. Robert Howard, Professor of Old Age Psychiatry at University College London, is one of the sceptics. There is a clear indication that somehow amyloid is involved in Alzheimer's, he says, but it's not clear that the presence of amyloid in your brain drives the disease. It might be like a tombstone that happens at the end, where the amyloid is actually a protective protein that the brain produces to try and protect itself. We don't know, but removing amyloid doesn't seem to make any difference to the course of Alzheimer's disease. Imagine having worked for years on the assumption that getting rid of amyloid is key, only to learn that you have been following the wrong trail. You might think that is a definition of tragedy, of spectacularly wasted effort and energy. On discovering this, how could someone find the motivation to get out of bed and head back to the laboratory? Yet you'd be wrong, even if eliminating amyloid is not the solution, and even if the latest drugs fall short. This is simply the nature of medical research. Samuel Beckett's exhortation, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, feel better, should be pinned to every lab door. The speed with which effective vaccines for COVID were formulated has perhaps blinded us to the reality of how treatments are generally found. The hunt for a cure is as much about elimination as hitting the bullseye. Of course, there are occasional happy accidents or blinding revelations, but miracles in medicine are almost as rare as unicorns. The laborious task of following one line of inquiry until obliged to reject it and find another is how the process works. Every triumph is built on the work of unheralded legions of pharmacologists and medics racing to explore every possible avenue of inquiry, even though the vast majority of them will never win the Nobel Prize their endeavours and their errors are essential to the success of those who do. A case in point is malaria, which for a century has eluded the finest brains in medicine. Last year, a vaccine was finally approved for use in children, and this year Oxford University has been trialling a vaccine 
thought to offer up to 80% protection at an affordable price. Since around 409,000 people a year die from malaria worldwide, this is a game changer in terms of global health. Yet the fact it has taken 100 years to get to this point shows not only how difficult a challenge it has proved, but that despite dedicated teams of scientists, some ailments remain stubbornly resistant to intervention. Those suffering from motoneurone disease, to name but one of several as yet incurable illnesses, are only too well aware of this. With Alzheimer's, it looks as if there are good reasons to be hopeful. Currently, 143 different drugs are undergoing stage 3 trials, each of them approaching from a different angle. You could see the disease as being like a bolted door at which medics have been hammering for decades. They've used pickaxes, battering rams, rocket launchers, and still it's not giving in. But everybody knows it's only a matter of when. Will it happen in my lifetime? I couldn't say. In our grandchildren's? I'd be prepared to bet on that. This is an article by Rosemary Goring. Recorded from the Herald on the 21st of September 2022. From the sports section. Recorded by Amy. Kenny Miller admits Charlie McCann and Leon King Rangers shock as he delivers trust verdict. By David Urban. Kenny Miller has admitted he was caught off guard by the decision to start Charlie McCann and Leon King against Dundee United. The former Rangers striker was surprised to see the youth duo given starting spots for the Scottish Premiership clash. Giovanni Van Bronckhurst made the major call to include both McCann and King from the start and wasn't disappointed with both players looking solid at Ibrox. For Miller, the decision shows the huge trust Van Bronckhurst must have in the duo as he cited the investment into the Rangers' defence over the summer which hasn't forced King down the pecking order and he was equally excited about McCann's involvement as he branded the midfielder a very, very good player. Speaking on the Go Radio football show, Miller said, They're good players, there's no doubt about it. Did they expect to see it? No, I didn't to be honest. Not when you have put that investment into the back line, but I think it shows how much Giovanni trusts them. They're obviously doing their best in training every day, showing up and have earned their slot because he wouldn't have handed to them if he felt they didn't deserve it. McCann I have seen for a few years now and he's a very, very good player. I think he saw in spells with a few chances. He was one of the players in the second half that had really good opportunities in particular. In the same areas Kent and Arfield picked up, but he completely missed it. But he's a really good technical player, really intelligent footballer. It was great to see him get a game and even more pleasing in those players came in and won. They got on very well, both of them. Ahead of the 2-0... 2-1 win over the United, Van Bronckhurst re- revealed impressive training turnouts led to the starts for the young pair. He explained, I'm really happy with this with his development. Charlie is training really well. A bit unfortunate for him, he cannot be in the Champions League squad, but today he is available again. I'm really impressed with his performances in training, so I'm happy to see both Charlie and Leon in the starting lineup. That article was by David Irvin. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 21st of September 2022, from the Voices section. 
Agenda How the Elderly Can Best Support the Young by Leslie Morrison When the Queen died, many of us felt grief, not just for her, but for the loss of family members and for a generation from whom we have so much to learn about duty, service and listening. Rather than, than talking, really listening. In the moving clip, film clip of the Queen on her last official engagement visiting a new hospital, she was clearly frail, but she was still focused on the person she was introduced to, looked directly into their eyes and was really listening. Many older people, very concerned about what the future holds for their children and grandchildren, are struggling to know what they can do to make a difference. They, we, can easily feel disconnected and lacking in a sense of purpose. We may belong to families and community organisations, but be unclear what our useful role in them is. But elderhood brings experience, time and hopefully some wisdom and listening skills. In my working life as a GP, I was very aware of the importance and power of listening. Dr David Haslam, previously head of the BMA, condensed the skills of a doctor into Shut up, listen, no stuff, care. Good listening takes time and energy and this is fundamental to working effectively with others and creating change. Christiana Figueres, who, as head of the UN Committee on Climate Change, stewarded the Paris Agreement into being, attributes the progress made to what she learned from the Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh about deep listening and respecting the difference in others' opinions. As Ms Figueres says, this is a crucial time for the future of our planet and, rather than be paralysed by the threats, we should recognise that it is a privilege to be here now, with the opportunity to make a difference. This applies to all of us, old and young. Climate change, pandemics and conflict are very real threats for everyone, but it's important to transform that fear and anxiety into positive, age-appropriate engagement and nourishing what the eco-psychotherapist John Macy calls active hope. Our generation has borrowed from the future in terms of use of resources and establishing debt. We need to acknowledge that and find positive ways to move forward. They may well be different from how we previously engaged. They may may occur at a slower, more thoughtful tempo, but they are needed. The challenge is for us to find a way of handing over the baton, remaining involved in an age-appropriate way while supporting younger people to take things forward. Bill McKibben, the American author and environmentalist behind 350.org, the global grassroots movement for climate and social justice, has now founded Third Act, an organisation for older people in America who want to work for a fairer, more sustainable society and planet. They back up the work of younger people and make good trouble of their own. Is there an equivalent movement here? If not, shall we create one? By Leslie Morrison. Leslie Morrison is a retired GP. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 21st of September 2022 Arts and Entertainments Book Literary heavy hitters Robert Harris and Stephen King are back with their latest novels by Herald Magazine Fiction Act of Oblivion Robert Harris Hutchinson Heinemann £22 Ebook £10.99 The year is 1660 and two English colonels are on the run in America accused of high treason On their trail is a man tasked with bringing to justice those responsible for the murder of Charles I. The stakes could not be higher for the fugitives, faced with a mandatory death sentence of the most grisly and painful kind. 
Billed as the greatest manhunt in the 17th century, active oblivion does not disappoint. Harris breathes life into f historical events as they may have played out through his beautifully crafted characters they are not simply products of turbulent times. He also achieves what historians often fail to do by remembering the stoic women left behind to fend for themselves and take care of their families. A gripping thriller and a timely reminder of the dangers of a deeply divided and intolerant society. 9 out of 10. Fairy Tale, Stephen King, Hodder and Stoughton, £22, ebook £12.99. A boy, his dog, in a shed that hides a portal to a parallel universe, Stephen King's fairy tale is a modern take on Jack and the Beanstalk. Peppered with a myriad of classic fairy tale legends, after inheriting the shed, the secret, and radar the dog from an old recluse, 17 year old Charlie descends into the world of Empus. Two moons fill the sky and the Grey Plague is slowly killing the population with the horrific disfigurements. From exiled princesses to child eating giants in dungeon prisons, Fairy Tale is brimming with folklore reimagined through King's expert imagination. In true fairy tale tradition, King's latest fantasy novel is a story of good versus evil, and Charlie must help the people of Empus escape the tyrannical rule of the flight killer. 9 out of 10. Girl Friends. Holly Byrne, Hodder and Stoughton, £16.99, ebook £7.99. Holly Byrne's latest novel, Girl Friends, follows the life of 32 year old Fern, a successful writer living in London with her boyfriend, when an old friend from her past, Jessica, re enters her life. Each chapter flits between present day Fern and her teenage self unravelling the reasons behind her current mistrust of Jessica and her intentions for reigniting the friendship. With each chapter, you learn more about what made their friendship bloom, while the unease of an unspoken ending to it lingers. Girl Friends is funny, painfully relatable and at times shocking, as Holly Bourne explores the growing pains of teenage girls in learning to let go of the past. 8 out of 10 Non-fiction Hysterical, exploding the myth of gendered emotions Pragya Agarwal, Canongate, £16.99, ebook £13.59. Why are women seen as the emotional sex? Is a question behavioural scientist Pragya Agarwal tackles in her enlightening book Hysterical. Drawing upon history, data, and pop culture, she explores the nuances behind gendered emotions, how they came about, how our society's deeply ingrained stereotypes reinforces them and more importantly, how they harm us, not just women, but men too. At times the book can be a bit dry when Agarwal cites a few too many case studies, but in the whole she makes her point clearly. Agarwal is at her best when relating the impact of gendered emotion in her personal life, brackets, something that comes up time and time again as the mother of twin girls, close brackets, and making insightful pop culture references including mention of the Pixar film Inside Out, why indeed are anger and fear portrayed by male characters and joy, sadness discussed by females? 7 out of 10 Children's Book of the Week Marcus Rashford, Little People, Big Dreams Maria Isabel Sanchez Vigara, illustrated by Gilherm Carsten Francis Lincoln Children's Books, £9.99, ebook £7.99 Nourish young minds with inspirational tales of real-life achievement with the latest addition to Maria Isabel Sanchez Vigara's Little People Big Dreams series. The series introduces children to icons from politics, film, sport, technology, science and more through engaging audience-appropriate narrative and colourful illustrations. The latest edition brings us to the tale of a young working-class boy from Manchester with a real talent for football. 
He often relied on free school meals and went on to become a Premier League hero, representing his country and a passionate campaigner for child hunger in the UK, driving huge social change during the Covid pandemic. Beautifully told with vibrant illustrations from Gilherm Carsten, Rashford's story is impressive yet relatable for a young audience and makes a worthy addition to the series. 9 out of 10 by Herald Magazine. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 21st of September 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Books. New release. Spaceships Over Glasgow by Stuart Braithwaite. By Alistair Mabbitt. Spaceships Over Glasgow. Stuart Braithwaite. White Rabbit. £20. The strangest thing about this book is that it exists at all. The sheer unlikeliness that an almost entirely instrumental and defiantly non-mainstream group like Mogwai should not only make it out of the 1990s, but become one of Scotland's most durable and internationally respected musical exports. Their refusal to water down their creative vision has been their greatest strength, lending the band a mystique and gravitas that's playfully dismantled in this candid and articulate autobiography by co-founder and guitarist Stuart Braithwaite. Even if Braithwaite had never picked up a guitar, Spaceships Over Glasgow would still stand as an electrifying memoir of the joys of being a teenage music fan. Born in Lanarkshire in 1976 and spending most of his formative years in Hamilton, his tastes were shaped by bands like Sonic Youth, My Bloody Valentine and Dinosaur Jr. His account of seeing his favourite band The Cure for the first time at the age of 13 is written with undimmed passion and excitement, as though he'd been waiting his whole life reliving every detail of the gig over and over again to set it down in paper. That same infectious enthusiasm is poured into the retellings of successive adolescent landmarks, like sneaking into his first over-18s gig, brackets the G's and Mary chain, close brackets, disguised as a girl to get past the bouncers, and attending his first festival, a trip to Reading where Nirvana played a performance that would change everything for me. The vivid memoir of a teenage pop fanatic transitions smoothly into the chronicles of a professional musician, so that even when he's playing at the Albert Hall in Glastonbury, or scoring motion pictures, or getting the seal of approval from heroes like Robert Smith, he remains a knowledgeable and enthusiastic consumer of new, obscure and challenging music. Key to Mogwai's success has been their seriousness about their art. From the first day, he writes, with an almost religious drive to make something really special, music with performance. But from a very young age, there were signs that a bumpy ride of drug-fueled chaos lay ahead too. One of Braithwaite's early memories is of hallucinating geometric patterns whilst under anaesthetic for an adenoid operation. On another occasion, he was left unscathed after running down a flight of stairs and crashing through a plate glass window. The impression that I was apparently invincible was one that I would carry with me into my adult life, he writes. Taken together, those two anecdotes set the scene for the reckless abandon that would accompany Mogwai's ascent, as Braithwaite consumed mountainous quantities of alcohol and mind-altering substances without paying much heed to the consequences. Much of spaceships over Glasgow is like watching a tightrope walk, waiting for the point where it all inevitably comes crashing down. The moment when Braithwaite finds himself snorting crushed-up ecstasy from a church altar must be the turning point, you think. But no. The briefly chastened Mogwai continued to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, their discipline and dedication rescuing them from the fate of becoming some drunken circus act. Braithwaite has written a book he can feel justly proud of, detailing the struggle to keep a band together while facing up to his flaws and failed relationships as he slowly matures and leaves to take on greater responsibility, 
There's a touching warmth to it too, as he pays tribute to the people he's met along the way and remembers his late father, Scotland's last telescope maker, a man whose story he generously admits is probably worth a book in itself. By Alistair Mabbott. The Herald, Thursday the 22nd of September 2022. News. Scottish ministers failing to plan properly to cut child poverty, says Watchdog. This article is by Tom Gordon. The Scottish Government is failing to tackle child poverty adequately, the country's spending watchdog has warned, with ministers neglecting to set clear milestones. In a new briefing paper, Audit Scotland said the Government needed far better long-term planning to address the problem, including preventing more children from falling into poverty in the first place, instead of focusing efforts on lifting them out of it. In 2017, MSPs set a target of reducing relative child poverty to 18% by 2023, 24, and then to 10% of children by 2030, 31. The government issued an initial plan covering 2018 to 2022, but it failed to spell out what its expected impact would be nor did it set out an anticipated trajectory towards hitting the later targets, despite its own Poverty and Inequality Commission repeatedly advising it to link actions to targets. The briefing said, because of this, it is not possible to make a proper evaluation of whether the first delivery plans delivered its aims. Child poverty has risen since the plan was published. In 2019-20, before the pandemic, some 260,000, or 26%, of Scotch children were in relative poverty, defined as being in a household below 60% of median income, and that the cost of living crisis risked making their plight worse. Over the period 2017-20, it was estimated at 24%. Children in poverty are more likely to have health problems, including mental health issues, have fewer qualifications, and suffer stigma and bullying at school. The briefing said that with the devolved Scottish child payment rising from £10 to £25 per qualifying child per week, child poverty should be below the 18% target in 2023-24 but only on one of the four measures used by ministers. It is also said a second four-year plan covering 22 to 26 was better than the first, but more cooperation is required between government and councils to hit the 2030-31 target. Auditor General for Scotland, Stephen Boyle, said poverty affects every aspect of a child's well-being and life chances and has wider implications for society. The Scottish Government needs to work with its partners to quickly set out the details of how the Second Child Poverty Plan will be delivered, monitored and evaluated. Government policy takes time to have an impact on child poverty and so it is essential ministers also act now to set out options for reaching their long-term targets in 2030. William Moyes, Chair of the Accounts Commission, 
said councils have a key role to play in tackling child poverty through measures such as housing, education, childcare and employability. And there is limited information available across councils about what they are doing and its impact. Better collection and sharing of information about Council's child poverty work will help support learning and improvement across Scotland. Tory MSP Miles Briggs said Audit Scotland have delivered a damning but fully justified criticism of the SNP government's dismal record on child poverty. They point out that levels of child poverty have risen since SNP ministers set targets in 2017 and highlight the lack of long-term measures to prevent it and the need for more joint planning between the Scottish Government and local councils. One of the most telling indicators of the SNP's failure is the huge educational attainment gap between youngsters from the most and least deprived backgrounds, which Nicola Sturgeon vowed to and has comprehensively failed to eliminate. If the SNP's latest child poverty plan is to have any chance of success, they must reverse years of local government funding cuts and give Scotland's councils the resources required to tackle this issue. Labour MSP Pam Duncan Glancy said the number of children living in poverty in Scotland is nothing short of a national scandal and it is essential that we meet our legal and moral duty to tackle this. Every single child in poverty is a child too many and every single day spent in poverty is a day too many. Mitigating the negative impacts of poverty is not the same as eradicating it but this report makes clear that there is much more the government needs to be doing to prevent poverty in the first place. The SNP Green government must listen to this stark warning and start using every lever they have to drive down rates of child poverty and make sure every child in Scotland gets a fair start. Scottish Liberal Democrat Willie Rennie said, The Scottish Government never set out what impact its first child poverty plan was supposed to have. That makes it easy for them to declare success, even as poverty rates rise. No child should ever have to live in poverty. Knowing that the government has not done enough to keep families, young parents and children is heartbreaking. By the age of two, children from the most deprived backgrounds are significantly more likely to have a cause for concern about their development compared to children from the most affluent backgrounds. Detecting issues at an early age is so important. Without early intervention, the gaps in development, health and attainment only get wider when children reach school. John Dickey, Director of the Child Poverty Action Group in Scotland, said, Audit Scotland is absolutely right to highlight the terrible damage poverty does to children's well-being and life chances and the need for government to plan ahead to ensure all statutory child poverty targets are met by 2030. That must mean supporting families through the cost of living crisis by delivering more immediate cash support and ensuring above inflation increases so that Scottish benefits at least hold their real terms value 
next year. Social Security needs to play a key role in preventing as well as alleviating child poverty, particularly where parents are unable to work or work enough hours due to ill health, disability or caring responsibilities. But as this report makes absolutely clear, to achieve the 2030 child poverty targets, a longer term plan needs to be being developed now, especially on how many more parents will be able to access decently paid, family-friendly jobs. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, Tackling child poverty is a national mission. We invested an estimated £8.5 billion in supporting low-income households between 2018-22, of which £3.3 billion directly benefited children. Our second Tackling Child Poverty Delivery Plan, Best Start, Bright Futures, sets out our actions to tackle child poverty still further, including our focus on long-term parental employment support, increased social security and measures to reduce household costs. This includes increasing the Scottish child payment to £25 per eligible child per week from the 14th of November, a 150% increase within eight months, with the game-changing anti-poverty benefit also opening to applications for eligible under-16s from that date. We welcome the Audit Scotland briefing paper and together with our partners, we'll give it careful consideration. The Scottish Government said its latest progress report showed it had delivered on all 68 of its committed actions, including introducing the Scottish Child Payment. This article is by Tom Gordon. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 22nd of September 2022, from the sports section, Jack Grealish takes Pop back at Rangers hero Graeme Souness, insisting, I don't know what his problem is, by Ewan Payton. England star Jack Grealish is taking a pop back at Graeme Souness, saying, I don't know what his problem is with me. The Rangers legend appeared on Talk Sport earlier this week. The former Liverpool manager made a point of saying that he doesn't feel Grealish is a great player and many overestimate his abilities. Grealish moved to Manchester City last summer for a whopping £100 million from Aston Villa. The internationalist admits himself he could do, do more and can still improve, but he made it clear that Sinus's criticisms mean nothing to him. He said, I don't know what his problem is with me. He always says stuff about me, but I try not to read a lot of it. It's difficult when he's on Sky Sports and it's everywhere around the training ground at times. Listen, he was obviously a great player and won a lot, but I don't know what it is with what he says about me or what problem he's got. I know within myself, I always watch my games back and I'm very critical of myself. I know that there were games, especially in the second half of last season, where I wasn't at my best at all. People have so much to say, whether that be in social media or pundits and stuff like that. It's just part and parcel of the game. Everyone wants to talk about it, whether it is good or bad, so you just have to go with the flow, really. I've had to learn to deal with it. It's more as someone was saying it like my mum or my dad or someone. I'd listen a lot more. And that article is by Ewan Payton.
From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 22nd of September 2022. From the sports section, John McGinn insists Ukraine World Cup playoff defeat fueled Scotland victory. Report by David Irvin. John McGinn has admitted the pain of the World Cup playoff defeat to Ukraine fueled the Scotland squad to victory in the Nations League. The stand-in skipper insisted the players owed Steve Clark, the Tartan Army and themselves a huge performance and they delivered with a win to move top of the Nations League group ahead of a crucial match against Ireland on Saturday. We needed it. The summer hurt us and it hurt us badly, said the Aston Villa midfielder. Tonight we had to get back to what we've been doing well, being horrible to play against, grafting, showing a bit of desire. We worked and worked. Ukraine are a really good team and proved that in the summer, but we got goals, good times, and it's a huge win for us. We know we underperformed in the summer. We can make as many excuses as we want, but we didn't turn up. We owed the manager and supporters a performance and, most importantly, we owed ourselves a performance. We knew how important it was to get the result tonight. We didn't turn up in Dublin, so we need to make sure we turn up in Glasgow. We are a top team and it's about time we started to show it and thankfully, we did tonight. McGinn netted the opener in a 3-0 win and was thrilled to be back in amongst the goals after a difficult spell in recent times. He explained, It's been a tough time for me personally on the pitch, but I've got the self-belief there. I was just so relieved that that goal went in. Hopefully back in the goal trail for country and for my club as well. And that article was by David Irvin. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 23rd of September 2022, from the sports section, Dundee United officially announced Liam Fox as new head coach by Ewan Payton. Liam Fox is the new Dundee United manager. The 38-year-old has been appointed as the head coach of the Tanner Dice Club. He has signed a two-year deal as he replaces Jack Ross as the club's new permanent gaffer. Stevie Crawford has left East Fife to join as his number two. He said, I'm absolutely delighted to be given the opportunity to lead this outstanding football club. It's a massive honour and privilege and I want to thank Tony and the board for their faith in me. I'm looking forward to putting a team in the park that supporters can be proud of. We have made some small steps in the last few weeks and it's now about getting that winning feeling back. I know how much the supporters at this club crave success. They, they, quite rightly, want a team that is fully committed to the cause every week and it's over to us as a coaching staff and the players to achieve that. This group of players have real potential and quality. It's down to us to find consistency in our performances to deliver the successes that we all want. I'm also delighted to have Stevie on board as my assistant. He's a brilliant human being, a real football man, and he has real experience in the game. He's been a manager and has worked at big clubs with big expectations. I've known Stevie a long time, and I have enormous respect for him as a coach. He cares deeply about developing players and teams, and will be a real asset to Dundee United. Tony Asgar said, We are delighted to announce Liam Fox as head coach at Dundee United, and the appointment of Stevie Crawford as his assistant head coach. Liam was clear in his interview with the board on how he plans to improve short-term performance and results as he outlined a coaching and tactical plan to allow Dundee United to return to our long-term strategy. He was brought to the club as one of Scotland's best young football coaches and now it is his time to lead the team to success.
is also exciting to appoint Stevie Crawford as assistant head coach. Stevie has vast coaching experience and a strong track record of developing forward players in his previous roles. I have no doubt this coaching team will bring much needed fresh and innovative coaching and game models to Dundee United. The club will also be adding a further assistant head coach soon to complete Liam's coaching, coaching staff. Under 18's coach Dave Bowman will continue to support the first team until the appointment is confirmed. And that was an article by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 23rd of September 2022, from the sports section, Ryo Hatate absent from Japan squad for for USA friendly by Ethan Smith. Ryo Hatate has been left out of Japan's squad for today's international friendly against USA. The Celtic midfielders is not in the starting eleven or on the bench, despite being away with his country on international duty. Japan or Celtic are yet to comment on Hatati's absence, so it remains to be seen whether he has picked up a knock. Taisen Maeda started the match for Japan, while Kyogo Furuhashi has been named in the ban- bench. Meanwhile, Kieran Tierney admits he has been seeking tips on his Arsenal role from Scotland teammate Greg Taylor. Gunners manager Michael Arteta has recently adopted the inverted fullback system which Ange Postelicoglu introduced to Celtic last season. Former Hoops left-back Tierney was familiar with the role, given his ongoing keen interest in all things Celtic, and his regular chats with, chats with Taylor, who moved to Parkhead weeks after his friend's departure from North London. Tierney said of Taylor's recent form, He's been brilliant, inverted fullback, and that's how we are playing it down there, so I'm watching him every week trying to take tips from him, and it's been brilliant to see him doing well because he's a great guy. I'm really close to him, I speak to him a lot, so I'm buzzing for him. We watch each other's games and always text each other after games. It's a new role for me and a role he is really comfortable in. It's great to watch him. He has been one of Celtic's best players this season. Greg's attitude is brilliant and I'm delighted to see him doing so well. A great guy who deserves all the credit he's getting just now. And that piece is by Aidan Smith. The Herald, the 23rd of September and the Voices section. Rent freeze and eviction ban failed to tackle Scotland's underlying property problem. On the face of it, few could object to a ban on evictions and a rent freeze in a bid to support those in need during a cost of living crisis. However, the best of intentions are often undone by the hard facts of reality, such as the case with the Scottish Government's latest interventions in the rental property market. The big question about the effectiveness of this new legislation has to be whether the changes will help mitigate the rising cost of living. Given much of what is currently driving inflation is increases to the cost of utilities, petrol and day-to-day goods, it seems unlikely these measures will make a meaningful difference to the people it's intended to help. On the other side of the equation are the landlords. In some cases that may refer to someone who has rented out their property with utility bills included in the monthly rental price. They stand to shoulder the weight of all the rising costs we have read so much about in recent months, with no ability to evenly share the burden of skyrocketing energy bills or even their mortgage payments. If a tenant refuses to pay their rent, resolving the situation is likely to be a protracted process. Currently, A tribunal against a tenant can't be initiated until they are at least three months in arrears. 
The Scottish Government's new legislation will see this double, extending the minimum to six months. In reality, this is likely to take longer. Realistically, landlords could be looking at up to eight months before any kind of resolution is achieved. All the while, they are receiving no income from the properties and rising costs. Combined with the new regime for short-term lets coming into effect at the end of October, it's clear that there is an attempt to move more properties from the short-term lettings to the long-term letting or sales market. While the principle is fine in theory, it fails to solve the issue of Scotland's chronic, according to the Homes for Scotland, undersupply of new homes. In fact, earlier this year, research from Admiral, who pointed towards Scotland excuse me, having the worst ratio of renters to rentals in the UK, with 412 people looking for every 100 rooms. Clearly, there is a problem to solve. The new legislation may reshape the property market in Scotland to a point where it's less attractive as a destination for investment, particularly compared to strong markers in England. And, although some landlords may decide to sell, House prices are likely to remain too high for many people to take that initial step on the property ladder, and many of the properties that become available will not be suitable for the first or even second-time buyers. Rather than solve the underlying mismatch between the supply and demand of homes, the Scottish Government's legislation merely kicks the can further down the street and punishes private landlords in the meantime. The Herald, the 23rd of September, and the Voices section. Trust in a Rush is a race to the bottom by Donald MacLeod. Throughout her tortuous Tory leadership battle, they also ran Rishi Sunak. Liz Truss promised to hit the ground running if the baton were passed to her. On her first day as PM, she raced out the starting blocks with an eye-watering 150 billion-pound package of emergency energy support measures. These were welcome interventions to reduce the skyrocketing energy bills for households and industry. With the domestic and energy price cap for a typical household set to rise in October to a humongous £3,549, she announced that domestic energy bills would now be capped at £2,500 annually until 2024. The government would compensate energy firms the difference between the wholesale price of gas and energy they pay and the amount charged to customers. The relief felt by many worried households was almost palpable. In a statement which lacked clarity in any meaningful detail, businesses were almost also promised help, but only for six months, which was called comfort for firms already struggling to meet payments and burdened with huge legacy debts from the pandemic and rises in supplier costs, staffing and soaring interest rates. Trust was in a rush to set her stamp on government, but her unashamed, bold and brash das, dash for economic growth was, as we know, contailed in the saddest of circumstances overtaken and completely overshadowed by an epochal event, the death of her 96-year-old monarch, Queen Elizabeth. On Wednesday, nearly two weeks after the country was plunged into a period of national mourning, Liz Truss and her new cabinet finally got back to running the country, 
albeit from the UN and through pre-prepared video messages and the press releases. In an unprecedented government intervention, Business and Energy Secretary Jacob Rees-Mogg announced that a six-month multi-billion pound energy support package for businesses, charities and public sector organisations would indeed come into play from the beginning of October. The UK government schemes means that wholesale electricity prices would be fixed at £211 per megawatt hour and gas prices capped at £75 per megawatt hour. An important intervention that will halve energy bills for business this winter and save many firms from going under, but only if these discounts are in turn passed on by their energy suppliers. It should also be remembered that this cap is only taking the energy price back to April levels, which were already proving to be an unaffordable to many energy-heavy businesses. Michael Kill, CEO of the UK Nighttime Industries Association, said, We welcome the long-awaited announcement of the Energy Bill Relief Scheme. However, we remain concerned that the measure to cap the wholesale price to energy supply companies may not result in sufficient relief being extended by the suppliers to business customers who remain free to impose additional uncapped markups such as network charges and operating costs. It's also imperative that this announcement is followed up with further action by the government and incorporates our core asks, specifically business rates, relief and VAT reduction across the board. Stuart Patrick, Chief Executive of Glasgow Chamber of Commerce, said, There are still other difficulties facing companies. Staff shortages, inflation and supply chain issues are all massive barriers which businesses are facing. Whilst we are encouraged that the government are taking this action to address the energy costs, we still require further movement to address the overall cost of operating to help businesses thrive. It's hoped that the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, will today in his mini-budget not make a mess of it, and accept that in order to survive, businesses need more than just a six-month energy freeze. That he will introduce a long-term business strategy to encourage growth, not a temporary sticking plaster, one which will stimulate the economy and protect jobs and livelihoods. A major reduction in the VAT rate and a business rate relief package would do just that. If not, I fear that this government will have hit the ground running, but only to take the UK in a race to the bottom of the abyss. By Donald MacLeod. The Herald, Monday the 26th of September 2022. News. Dignitas backs Scotland's assisted dying plans as UK politicians accused of outsourcing issue. This article is by David Ball. Assisted dying proposals in Scotland have been backed by Dignitas as the organisation accused UK politicians of outsourcing this issue to Switzerland, where it has helped hundreds of British residents end their lives. The not-for-profit organisation, which provides physician-assisted suicide, complained the legal situation in the UK was inadequate and incoherent. 
with Liberal Democrat MSP Liam MacArthur now bidding to change the law in Scotland to permit assisted dying under certain circumstances, Dignitas said his bill was an important step forward. However, it still had some criticism of Mr MacArthur's proposals, which have now obtained sufficient support from MSPs for a bill to be brought forward at Holyrood. A total of 32 MSPs at Holyrood have now given their support to his bill, with Mr MacArthur noting this was well exceeding the 18 signatures needed for a member's bill. However, Dignitas said that for many years the UK has been outsourcing the issue of assisted dying to Switzerland, thus knowingly violating citizens' human rights to have this choice at home. In its response to the consultation on Mr MacArthur's proposals, Dignitas said that the UK has so far failed to legislate outright for its own citizens despite the fact that a clear majority of the public has been requesting for this for many years. It said, with this close to 500 UK residents, including 16 of Scotland, have been forced to leave their home just because they wish to have legal assisted dying, which they were able to access at Dignitas. The legislation being proposed by Mr MacArthur would require two doctors to sign off on the patient being terminally ill, as well as having the mental capacity to make the decision and ensuring they are not being coerced. The doctors would also ensure the patient was aware of all palliative and hospice care options available, while the patient would be asked to sign a written declaration of their intentions, followed by a period of reflection, and administer the life-ending drugs themselves. However, Dignitas argued that this period of reflection could prolong people's suffering. In its submission as part of the bill consultation, it said, The experience of Dignitas derived from having conducted over 3,200 physician-supported assisted oblique-accompanied suicides is that generally people who contemplate end-of-life choices make up their mind as part of their personal life philosophy long before they would face a health situation in which they would get in touch with Dignitas to request physician-supported assisted accompanied suicide. Any time frame, 30, 14 days or shorter, leads to possibly prolonging the suffering. While it said requiring two doctors involved in the process may be seen as a safeguard, they said that this adds an unnecessary hurdle that consumes time which a rapidly declining individual may have little left of. And it added to only allow access to assisted dying for individuals who are terminally ill, as defined in the consultation document, is to discriminate against individuals who suffer from health conditions that are, by medical opinion, not progressive and reasonably expected to cause death. Mr MacArthur said, I am immensely grateful to everyone who took time 
to share their views as part of the public consultation on my proposals, particularly those who shared their personal experiences. This will help inform and shape any future bill. It is important that in looking to change the law to allow for the choice of an assisted death for adults with a terminal illness and mental capacity, that we strike a balance between safety and compassion. Having effective and proportionate safeguards in place helps achieve that vital balance. This article is by David Ball. From the Glasgow Times, Monday the 26th of September 2022, from the sports section, former boxing world champion Hannah Rankin vows to return after losing titles by Susan Eaglesnaff. Former world champion Hannah Rankin has vowed to bounce back from her defeat on Saturday evening, which saw her lose her two world title belts. The 32-year-old has been seeking to successfully defend her WBA and IBO Super Welterweight titles for the second time, but was beaten by England's Terry Harper, who put in a polished performance to win by unanimous decision in Nottingham. Rankin was hampered throughout the fight by a cut above her left eye, which caused which was caused by a right hand from Harper in the opening round, before another right hand in round two caused it to open up, with blood streaming down Rankin's face for much of the rest of the bout. Rankin was taken to hospital as a precaution following the final bell, but she confirmed on social media that all her tests showed no significant damage before praising her opponent and promising to return. My CT scan is clear and my eye is stitched up, Rankin said. Congratulations to Terry Harper on becoming a two-weight world champion. I'll heal up and I'll be back. Thank you to everyone for their support. Harper is a former super featherweight world champion, having held the IBO and WBC titles before losing them last year, and surprised many with her move to super welterweight. Prior to the fight, Rankin was confident her natural power, weight and 3-inch height advantage would be too much for Harper, who moved up three weight classes for this bout. But, in fact, there were few signs in the 10 rounds that Harper was uncomfortable with a super welterweight. The 25-year-old's superior hand speed and accuracy immediately caused Rankin problems, with the cut in the Scots eyebrow a direct result of Harper's sharp punches. This, was the, this defeat was the sixth of Rankin's career, moving her records to 12 and 6 and the bout with Natasha Jonas that the Scots so craved as she looked to unify the division will have to wait, with Harper likely to be Jonas' next opponent now. And that article is by Susan Eaglestaff. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 26th of September 2022, from the sports section, heady days for the Tartan Army, and more likely to come, Monday kickoff by James Morgan, there was a time in the not-so-distant past when a Scotland international break was met with the kind of collective groan that accompanies the discovery that the BBC are still funding the production of Irish tragic comedy, Mrs Brown's Boys. But some of the more embarrassing moments include a 3-0 defeat in Kazakhstan and a thrashing in Belgium, but the script has evolved quite significantly since those toe-curling days, which is more than can be said for Mrs Brown's Boys. Tomorrow in Krakow, Scotland can secure a playoff spot for Euro 2024 so long as they avoid defeat by Ukraine following two energising victories in recent days. 
Last Wednesday's win over the same opponents at Hamden was mightily impressive and represented the return of the physical, in-your-face performance that has been the hallmark of the previous European Championship qualifying campaign, which culminated in playoff victories over Israel and Serbia. The similarly cathartic win over the Republic of Ireland at the National Stadium on Saturday, a battling, teeth-bearing victory, was a stirring antidote to the woeful performance they turned in in Dublin in June. It now appears as if those back-to-back summer defeats at the hands of the same opponents that Scotland have now beaten impressively were mere blips. The great shame is that the first of those slip-ups denied Scotland their place at a first World Cup final since 1998. But perhaps this is merely the start and not the end of a long run. There is a depth to this Scotland team that Steve Clark has built and is and it is a description that relates to both the quality of the squad and to the reservoir of character it possesses. There is a production line of talent coming through, too, as the repeated incursions by English Premier League clubs demonstrate as they hoover up the best of young talent from academies in Scotland. Topping Nations Group B1, elevation to the A tier of the competition, and securing a playoff spot would only serve to reinforce the belief that Scotland is an emerging force at the international level. Plenty left in reserve. On that note, it is possible to witness the future right before our eyes with a look at Scott Gemmell's under-21s. If there is an area of the pitch where the senior team are perhaps in need of an infusion of fresh talent, it might just be an attack. Yes, Jay Adams was unlucky not to score last Wednesday night and give you kind of backline plenty to think about with his energy and runs in behind, but he was also wasteful. Yes, Lyndon Dykes rose majestically to head in the clinching second and third goals, but he's also a certain type of striker and not necessarily suited to playing the lone role, as evidence against the Republic of Ireland on Saturday. Which is why it is instructive to look at Gemmo's squad, where there are two players who might provide the senior squad with long-term options. This column recently mentioned Tommy Conway, the young Bristol City striker, who has started the season in the Championship with seven goals in 12 games, who made his debut for the under-21s against Northern Ireland on Thursday, and Ben Doak, the young Liverpool attacker formerly of Celtic, who scored a fine individual goal in that 3-0 win in Belfast before sitting out the return game yesterday. The progress of both will serve to intrigue and offer further grounds for optimism. What's on TV? Rangers have the chance to go back to the top of the Premiership when they meet Hearts in the lunchtime kickoff at Tynecastle on Saturday. Sky Sports Football 12.30, albeit only for a couple of hours. It is an opportunity that they would not have expected so quickly, after falling five points behind Celtic in the title race when the sides met at the start of the month. Standing in their way will be a Hearts team that will be looking to record their third win in the drop. Robbie Nielsen's side will have to buck the recent trend of failing to beat Rangers, however. Their last victories came against the Ibrox side in 2020, the second of which almost resulted in Stephen Gerrard resigning before the COVID-19 outbreak intervened. But those results were something of a blip in recent trend. Those are the only wins over Rangers since a 4-1 victory at Tynecastle in February 2017, a run spanning 18 fixtures. Warriors more like their old selves. Glasgow Warriors will head into Saturday's United Rugby Championship match against Ospreys with a spring in their step after they left punters with a familiar Friday feeling at Scotland the other night. Lambasted for a limp performance against Benetton Treviso in their league opener 10 days ago, 
There was plenty of panache to Franco's specimen, a flair that had been missing not just in Italy, but over large chunks of the previous campaign under Danny Wilson. The ankle ligament injury to Rory Dard is a sickening blow, but it might also present an opportunity to talk for Thomas Gordon, who stood in against Cardiff and provided an assured performance while nabbing a second-half try into the bargain. For Warriors fans, there can be a renewed sense of optimism that Smith is the man to make Glasgow a force at this level once more. Murray's legacy is beyond debate. There was a slew of critics mocking Andy Murray for appearing in a picture with Roda Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic for the Swiss great final farewell at the Leifer Cup in London last week. The main gist of their comments seemed to be of the what's he doing there variety. Of course, it's a familiar trait of the social media brigade to rubbish sporting achievements these days, to reframe or recast history in a negative and inaccurate light. Yes, Andy's three Grand Slam victories pale in comparison to that beside Federer, 20, Djokovic, 21, and Nadal, 22, but they only tell part of the story. Such a rudimentary reading ignores the two Olympic gold medals that Scott won, they ignore the eight other Grand Slam finals he played in, his 46 ATP singles titles, the fact he was world number one for the best part of a year during the area, and it ignores, too, the hip injury, which first started bothering him in 2017 and resulted in a surgery in 2018 that has ended the careers of lesser mortals. It's possible to speculate that without that injury, Murray could have done plenty of stat patting as some of his contemporaries' dominance warmed waned over that time frame. It's conjecture, of course, revisionism, if you will, the kind of thing that's just as pointless as reducing the impact Murray made in the game to the fact he did not win more than three Grand Slams. 1,396, the number of supporters who turned up to watch open goal Broomhill's 1-1 draw against Hearts B at Broadwood on Friday. See what you like about the decision to bring Simon Ferry on board this summer, but his, and the show's, presence at the club has been reflected in people coming through the turnstiles. Broomhill are the most watched club in the Lowland League after six games, with crowds averaging 554. And that was the Monday kickoff by James Morgan. The Herald, Tuesday, the 27th of September 2022. News Glasgow footfall down a fifth compared to pre COVID levels. This article is by Deborah Anderson. Glasgow City Centre footfall is a fifth down compared to pre-pandemic levels, with lunchtime trade continuing to be a cause for concern. According to latest figures from the Council's City Centre Recovery Plan 2022-24, footfall for July was 19% lower compared with July 2019. It equates to around 810,000 fewer visitors per month, with just under 4 million in July. However, weekend and evening footfall is now close to pre-COVID levels at 98% and 93%. While more people are returning to offices, working from home has remained a popular option and appears to be having a knock-on effect with weekday and particularly lunchtime footfall considered an issue at 72% of pre-COVID levels. 
There is some good news, however, as sale figures are 20% above the same month pre-COVID, primarily driven by the food and drink sector, but there is continued improvement in fashion retail. Scotland's largest city was one of the hardest hit during lockdown and later restrictions in place for longer than other areas. However, while it has been a long journey, the volume of customers from outside the city is improving at 57% of pre-COVID levels, with hotel occupancy now 83% of pre-COVID levels, although the supply of rooms has decreased due to staff oblique recruitment issues. Councillor Angus Miller, convener for City Centre Recovery at Glasgow City Council, said the profound impact of the pandemic on our city centres required an equally major response and we and our partners are working to plan for and deliver the kind of mixed use and sustainable city centre we need to support. While certain sectors of the city centre economy have recovered well, we still have much work to do to deliver the changes we know we need to see, such as finding new ways to support the repurposing of property, reimagining the historic Golden Z, creating greener and more connected city streets through the avenues and other infrastructure projects, and delivering more homes in the heart of the city. Our ultimate aim is to create a city centre that is an attractive and sustainable place in which to live, work, study, visit and invest. And I look forward to working with partners to support that vision. The City Centre Task Force, CCTF, whose members come from the Council, the Scottish Government and the core sectors of the area's economy, has secured £1.95 million in funding from the Scottish Government to deliver work to support this recovery. Among the measures in place to help Glasgow's recovery include six area action plans focusing on areas of high footfall and transport hubs, Suckey Hall Street, Argyle Street, Anderston Cross, Buchanan Bus Station, the Healyman's Umbrella and High Street. Vacant units and strategic sites on Suckey Hall Street and Argyle Street is also being looked at, is in delivery, with finals, hoarding and other improvement works underway. A design competition to reinvigorate the shop fronts at the Healyman's Umbrella will shortly go live with the support of the Royal Institute of Architects. This will explore the use of colour, design and lighting and links to the broader plan for that location of bringing in new and different commercial uses as well as reducing antisocial behaviour. High street activity will be taken forward once the main work in Socky Hall and Argyle Street on vacant units has been completed and subject to remaining funds being available. In the meantime, the Independent Retail Fund is being supported, as is a new Meanwhile Use project involving a further nine units. The report added strategic planning is underway, which will see the completion of a retail capacity study 
and a master plan vision for the Golden Z, Sockey Hall Street, Buchanan Street and Argyle Street by the end of the financial year. The retail capacity study, which will develop intelligence around consumer research, expenditure analysis, future demand for retail floor space and performance analysis. The outcome of this will be an intelligence report which will feed into the next area of work, a new master plan vision for the Golden Z. A key part of Glasgow's new city centre strategy to be launched in January 2024 is a property repurposing plan. Research established that Glasgow city centre has a substantial legacy of old buildings, many of which are listed and or in a conservation area that are no longer fit for commercial uses. The recommendation is that property conversion opportunities must be taken, but this is likely to require significant shifts in policy as well as large-scale funding to protect these assets and transform them into productive, repurposed accommodation. Discussions are currently underway with the Scottish and UK governments with regard to their potential role in supporting specific recommendations. This article is by Deborah Anderson. Reported from the Herald on the 27th of September 2022. From the sports section, recorded by Amy. Rangers find alongside JD and Elite Sports by CMA for price fixing on official, official merchandise. By Aidan Smith. Rangers have been fined alongside JD Sports and Elite Sports by the Competition and Markets Authority, CMA, after being found guilty of price-fixing on official merchandise. An investigation found that Elite Sports and JD Sports broke competition law by fixing the retail prices of a number of Rangers-branded replica kits and other clothing products from September 2018 until July 2019. The Ibrox Club also took part in the collusion, but only to the extent of fixing the retail price of adult home short sleeve replica shirts from September 2018 to mid-November 2018. All three firms colluded to stop JD Sports from undercutting the retail price of the shirt on Elite Jer's online store. Elite Sports has been fined £459,000, JD Sports £1,485,000, and Rangers £225,000. The penalties include a settlement discount reflecting resource savings to the CMA as a result of all three, of all part, three parties admitting to acting illegally and helping bring a swifter resolution to the CMA's investigation. Elite Sports and JD Sports penalties also include a discount for coming forward with information about their participation in the illegal conduct and cooperating with the investigation under the GMA's leniency programme. Michael Grenfell, Executive Director of Enforcement at the CMA, said, At a time when many people are worried about the rising cost of living, it is important that football fans are able to benefit from competitively priced merchandise. Instead, elite JD Sports and to some extent Rangers work together to keep prices high. Today's decision sends a clear message to football clubs and other businesses that illegal anti-competitive collusion will not be tolerated. The article was by Aidan Smith. Recorded from the Herald on the 27th of September 2022. From the Sports section. Recorded by Amy. Sky Sports confirm new SPFL TV deal as they reveal details of improved coverage. By Aidan Smith. 
Sky Sports have confirmed that their new TV deal with the SPFL is now complete. The broadcaster will now show more Scottish Professional Football League SPFL matches than ever before under a new agreement with the league. The four-year extension to the current deal means Sky Sports will show Scottish League matches live every week of the season until 2029. In addition, and for the first time, football fans will be able to watch exclusively live fixtures from the Scottish Women's Premier League, SWPL, on Sky Sports from this season. The broadcaster will become an official partner of the SWPL and the title sponsor of the SWPL League Cup for the next seven seasons. The new broadcast agreements include up to 60 SPFL matches exclusively live each season from 2024-2025, more than ever before with scope to increase this over the term of the deal. Broadcasting live from each cinch premiership grant up to five occasions each season from 2024-2025, one more than in the current deal. A minimum of five SWPL or League Cup matches exclusively live each season from 2022-2023, with scope to increase further during the term. All Singe Premiership clubs be able to sell pay-per-view streams within the UK and Ireland of up to five league home games per season, with immediate effect subject to certain conditions including no matches during blocked hours. The latest Scottish football news across SkySports.com and app including exclusive features and interviews, plus dedicated live blog coverage and in-game clips from games live on Sky Sports. Free to watch highlights of every Scottish Premiership game on Sky Sports digital platforms, YouTube, SkyQ and SkyGlass. Alongside coverage and visibility for the SPFL across all Sky Sports' main social media channels, the bespoke Twitter channel, at Scotland Sky, will continue to be the home of all Scottish football content on Sky Sports. Dedicated weekly highlight shows on Sky Sports Football Stephen Van Ruyen, Sky's EVP and CEO UK and Europe, said Every time we extend our partnership with the Scottish Professional Football League, more football fans are watching. With this latest extension of our long-running partnership, Sky Sports customers will continue to be treated to the biggest games and even more live matches. For the first time, they will also have access to Scottish Women's Premier League matches as well, as we look to continue to bring the best football to an even wider audience. Scottish Professional Football League CEO Neil Duncaster said, This is a very significant financial and promotional deal for the SPFL, and I'm delighted our clubs have overwhelmingly supported deepening their relationship with the UK's leading sports broadcaster. Today's announcement represents a major financial boost for our 42 member clubs at a time when the UK economy is facing significant headwinds and will increase the exposure of Europe's most exciting and passionate league. We will have much work to do to achieve our target of paying fees to member clubs of £50 million per season, but this is an important and significant first step towards that target. Sky has an unparalleled track record of capturing the spectacle and passion of our sport and this partnership will bring Scottish football's action-packed drama to an even wider audience. SWPL Managing Director Fiona McIntyre added, This is an historic moment for the SWPL, an enormous step forward for the women's game in Scotland. This deal brings significant financial investment to the new leagues and enhances the visibility of the SWPL at this crucial time for the game. I'm delighted that Sky Sports recognise <coughs> the value and potential of the SWPL and will be a key partner for us as we enter into this new era.
our clubs have invested considerable resources and we can now see the rewards of that work with increasing commercial interest. This deal will allow clubs to invest further and will put the SWPL on the map as one of the most progressive women's leagues in the world. That article was by Aidan Smith. The Herald, the 27th of September and the Amatsonets section. Liverpool legend Mark Lorenzen's BBC Woke Talk is misguided by Adam Miller. These are divisive times. One thing we can all agree on is there aren't enough interviews with men in their 60s talking about wokeness. There's no longer a platform for people like me, they insist on Twitter. Good Morning Britain, the sleeve of their autobiography, their drive time talk radio show, and the posters for the nationwide speaking tour. The situation has become so dire that some are forced to share their thoughts with such obscure outlets as the Sunday Times, which, according to Wikipedia, is a British newspaper whose circulation makes it the largest in Britain's quality press market category, if you say so. That was the case on Sunday, when Mark, please be Ali McCoyst and not Mark Lawrenson's Lawrenson bravely stood up and said, I, as a 65-year-old white bloke, have identified the reason why I'm not getting as much work as I used to. And, spoiler alert, it's nothing to do with anything I've done. Was he about to go on there? Were we about to witness a man in his seventh decade fiercely blame whatever he doesn't like on wokeness? Veteran pundit Lawrenson was given parole in May, 32 years after being sentenced to a lifetime of being paid well to give his opinion on elite football matches. Despite appearing to loathe the game with every fibre of his being, the man won a European Cup and five league titles with Liverpool before being forced into punditry against his will. He appears to have made several escape attempts, most notably his decades-long make-withering comments and half-hours puns, rather than offering any kind of insight or enthusiasm protest. But it was apparently the BBC's belated realisation that he's an old white man, which eventually led to his release. Finally set free from the Shawshank State Prison of having to watch Kevin De Bruyne for a living. Asking the Sunday Times why the BBC had liberated him from their football coverage, Orenson replied... Well, I'm 65 and a white male, so, you know. He went on to describe himself as anti-woke, saying, In all my time at the BBC, nobody ever said you can't say this or that, but the woke thing drives me bonkers. Whereas normally you would say the first thing that comes into your head, you're now thinking, if I say that, will I get into trouble? It was a bit like playing with your legs tied together. Simmons might suggest that this is just the latest example of that modern phenomenon wherein old white blokes whose services are no longer required blame their obsolescence on the vague concept of wokeness, rather than looking within and asking if their own performance had anything to do with it. Woke, of course, has historically meant staying alert to racial prejudice and discrimination. Lawrenson, however, appears to have been using it in the modern sense which means things that displease me. To his credit, he at least refrained from following it up with a dig at Meghan Markle. 
These same cynics might suggest that Lawrenson was effectively the lever soprano of football punditry, sucking the joy out of every big occasion with a sneer or weary sigh, and performatively greeting every misplaced pass with, Oh, I wish the Lord would take me now. They might even go as far to say that, by ranting joyously about a subject he hasn't made enough effort to understand, he has perfectly illustrated why these services are no longer required. Cynics be damned. Maybe Lawrenson has a point. Can you actually name a single white man over the age of 60 still getting a high-profile broadcasting gig in football? I put that question to 77-year-old Sky Sports commentator Martin Tyler, 60-year-old BT Sport co-commentator Alan McCoyst, 65-year-old talk sport host Jim White, 69-year-old Sky Sports pundit Graham Sunis, 67-year-old Soccer Saturday host Jeff Stelling, and 61-year-old Match of the Day host Gary Lineker, and none of them could come up with anyone. In his times of play, Mark Lawrence and Scaled Heights, no one reading this will ever come close to scaling. For that alone, he commands respect and his opinion when it comes to footballing matters should carry some weight. That's why he spent decades being flown to the sport's most glamorous events and given the opportunity to share his thoughts on proceedings with millions of viewers. That he is no longer employed as a pundit has nothing to do with his skin colour, gender or age. If Lawrenson hadn't spent years making the maziest, messy runs sound as exciting as Theresa May TED Talk on historical changes to the packaging of Jacob's Crackers, he might still be on the BBC instead of giving the Sully Times the best impression of Alan Partridge running out of Broadcasting House with a block of Stilton on a fork. That was by Adam Miller. The Herald, the 10th of September, and the Arts and Ents section. Penny Geggy, Scots Word of the Week, by Dictionaries of the Scots Language. Penny Geggy. A Penny Geggy, or just a Geggy, was a travelling show, usually held in a tent, and it's rather sniffly defined in the Dictionaries of the Scots Language, DSL, as a travelling theatrical show of a rather crude type. Generally held in a tent, any portable theatre thrown up on a waste piece of ground. An early mention in the DSL refers to 1835 and its story of the Scots stage by R. Lawrenson, 1917. That historical institution, ye beloved of our grandsires, Mumford's Geggy, which illustrates that by this time the Geggies were being viewed in a historical context. The following example from A.J. Cronin's Hatter Castle, 1931, is not clear whether the content is bad or all the environment is melly. This is the first night of Leaven for Fair. I saw the start of the stinking geggies in my way home. Does the term still survive even as a collective memory? Only just. In The Scotsman of October 2010, an article discussing its origins of Will Fife, a comedian of the early 20th century, whose signature song was I Belong to Glasgow, notes, He belonged to Glasgow, the celebrated music hall comedian and film actor, was born in the city of Jam, Jute and Journalism in 1885, and was steeped in theatre from its earliest days as his father ran a penny-geggy or cheap touring theatre. 
Scots Word of the Week is written by Pauline Kerr's Speetle Dictionaries of the Scotch Language. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.